0: After a slow start to the 2022 season, Red Bull are riding high once again, dominating on track and taking home victories time and time again.
1: That wow, is that was a very lovely Sunday. He
2: has held on to that lead and Max Verstappen wins in Miami. Max Verstappen, from 10th on the grid, comes home to win the Hungarian Grand Prix. Winning the Belgium Grand Prix for a second year in a row. It's a ninth victory in Formula One in 2022 for the reigning world champion. Max Verstappen wins the Dutch Grand Prix.
1: What well done, mate. That was a mega drive.
0: Another championship victory is within reach. For Red Bull and for Max Verstappen. But it's clear that they won't let up until both titles are in the bag. Team Principal Christian Horner is sure of that. That's the, the DNA of this team,
1: that you've got to go for it. You know, we're an attacking team. We take on challenges, you know, wholeheartedly. And best form of defence is attack, and I think that you know that's the same for every single race you know, that we we'll are compete in for the rest of this year. And then the championship tables take care of themselves.
0: That appetite for competition, that determination and that attacking mentality are all themes that permeate through Red Bull Racing from the very top. They have done for years, and while Christian is confident about this year, he's also cautious about the team's burgeoning successes. And with so much at stake, who can blame him?
1: The focus is on, right, let's do the best we can in every single race and don't take anything for granted. We're in a healthy position, but it's never done until it's done.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. I always enjoy sitting down with Christian Horner because he's interesting, he's ambitious and he's constantly evolving as a team principal. Unbelievably, this is his 18th season as the boss of Red Bull, yet his passion and his hunger for knowledge are more akin to someone just starting out. With this year's all-new technical regulations have come new challenges for all of the teams. Red Bull have mastered them better than anyone, and Christian talks about how they've done that. He also opens up about that dramatic title showdown in Abu Dhabi 2021. He discusses his contentious relationship with Toto Wolff, and he tells us about his unwavering belief in both Max and Sergio Perez. We caught up at Red Bull's headquarters in Milton Keynes, where I found him in reflective mood, and he started by making a reference to when he first came on the show back in 2018. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Christian, thanks for your time. Great to have you back on the show. It's been a while. A lot's gone on. Yeah, it has. I I think
1: the last time we spoke... Daniel uh, Ricardo had just handed in his chips, literally, during the interview. So, uh, so yeah, it's definitely been a while.
0: And funny that Daniel Ricardo is back on the news agenda in Formula One now. It seems whenever we get together, Daniel's doing something.
1: Yes, unfortunately, he's been handed his chips. Um, so, yeah, which is a great shame because I think he's a big personality. And, and he's a great, great driver. And he's obviously lost his way a bit, but it um, would be great to see him remain in the sport
0: but before we come to all things Red Bull would you employ Daniel Ricciardo next year if you were Alpi I think I probably would
1: to be honest with you I think that they obviously know him from a couple of seasons ago and he was you know very together um during his last season there scoring podiums and and I think he's the type of guy that I, I I think you you could rebuild him it's obviously been a not a great experience for him for whatever reason. And uh, you've just got to think back to some of the drives that he, he did for us, some of the wins that he had, the podiums, some of the stunning overtakes that he was capable of. That's still in there, I'm sure. And it just needs a bit of a reset.
0: Have you ever come across a driver to sort of lose their way in the way that Daniel has over the last two years? Is it a confidence thing?
1: Like in all sports, you know, confidence is a big element. And for whatever reason, he hasn't got the feeling from the car, and across two sets of regulations. So, uh, and that's probably eked away at his confidence. But uh, you know, there's still a very, very capable driver in there, and you don't just forget how to uh, how to deliver. So, I, I, I hope for him, he he gets another opportunity and uh, and gets himself back on the grid for next year.
0: Well, let's let's do a a one eighty now and bring it onto red bull racing it's quite extraordinary what you guys are doing at the minute you won the driver's title in 2021 you're set up to do the double this year would you say the team is operating at a higher level than ever before
1: i would say so i mean 2021 we were operating at an incredible level and we finally got a sniff of putting a challenge together for a world championship and uh you know that was a 22 race like a championship it was a heavyweight fight from from race one to you know, race twenty two, and I think what's been particularly pleasing about this year is, despite the colossal regulation change we had to undergo going into this year, and honestly, we thought that we'd probably compromise this year by putting everything that we had into into last year. The team came up with an amazing car, with a supercar, and you know Max has just made another step. Checo's felt you know, more. Part of the team as well this year with uh, a lot more familiarity, and um, to be sitting here now having won twelve Grand Prix, sixteen podiums, I think it is so far has been a uh, an incredible season for us.
0: How did you manage to nail the new regulations so effectively? How did you split resources at the end of last year?
1: Well, as I say, we were probably the last team to transition onto the uh, to 2022 regulations, and we went quite late on development in 21 because you know when you've got a sniff of a championship we'd have kicked ourselves if we hadn't done everything that we possibly could you know to try and win that championship which meant compromising 2022 and with such a big regulation change uh, but the team back here in milton keynes whilst uh we, you know we were away uh, racing and fighting for that championship we did an incredible job and had an incredible winter to uh, to come up with you know the RB18 that's been potentially our most successful car ever, and uh, you know from the from the first race you know we were we were right there so you know tremendously rewarding for the whole team after the colossal effort that went into 2021 and to come out you know fighting again in 2022 and as a team I think we've been sharp uh, we've grabbed our chances we've taken our chances. Uh, And created opportunities. I think strategically we've been, um, you know, sharp on the pit wall as well this year. The race team have done a great job across all elements of the of, of the business.
0: You were quick from the first race, as you say, but Max was 40 odd points behind Charles Leclerc after the Australian Grand Prix. What were you thinking at that point?
1: I'm thinking I'm glad this is a 23 race championship because we're going to need all of them to get back into it. But it it was remarkable how quickly the swing happened. I mean, we had bad reliability in Bahrain where we're fighting for the win and uh, uh, we had a a fuel cell issue. Um, We then came away from Australia with another issue and, you know, two DNFs that early in the season and a big points delta to... You know, Charles and the Ferrari that were really delivering at a super high level and looked very, very competitive. It looked like it was going to be a tall order to claw that amount of points back. But within a couple of races, by the time we'd emerged from Iwala, you know, we'd pretty much diminished that entire gap.
0: Could Ferrari have made your life a little bit harder? I think they've had a great
1: car this year. They've got two very strong drivers. And they've had a very quick car and I think, you know, some of the opportunities they haven't taken. And we've managed to convert them and... Uh, been opportunistic, um, whether it be strategically or race-wise, to, to capitalise on those. So um, they've had a, uh, a, a very, very strong car, but um, I would, wouldn't say they've been perhaps as complete as we've been this year.
0: And have you been surprised by Mercedes' relative lack of pace?
1: Yes, uh, because they transitioned early. They made uh, quite a noise about compromising last year's championship because of, you know, moving over very early onto uh, onto their 2022 car, so and of course when when their car broke cover, particularly with its upgrade, it looked so radically different that you thought you just the expectation from seeing how dominant Mercedes have been was that they would be in a very very similar position that uh, obviously it hurt last year getting beat, but we felt that they would come back with a renewed you know vengeance for for this year. So quite remarkable that. After the domination that they've had for the last eight years that sitting here and now they've they're yet to win a grand Prix in, in 2022
0: but when you saw the size zero side puts in Bahrain for the first time what were you thinking was there a bit of a panic did you put them in the wind tunnel here just to see what avenue they were pursuing or were you completely confident in what I you think were the doing? first
1: question was is it is it legal because it's a very different interpretation of course it was and then the guys were pretty convinced early on that they just didn't feel that it would you know, certainly work in, within the architecture that we've, uh, we'd created. So there was a, an inner confidence that we picked the right, you know, the right route. And of course, when the lap time started to come in from that Bahrain test and you visibly see the cars on track, it didn't look like, you know, that they got a rocket ship um, or that we'd, that we'd missed something fundamental.
0: Do you feel that we're now entering a new Red Bull era? akin to the one that we had in 2010 to 2013.
1: Well, look, if we manage to pull off these back-to-back championships, which hopefully we can do with with Max, and if we're able to, um, for the first time in eight years, be the only team to beat Mercedes to the Constructors' Championship, that's an enormous feat. And it just shows if you never give up, anything is is possible. Now, the quality of our competitors is such that I cannot see... A period of domination like we've just endured but you know I think we've got a great team we've got great strength and depth so by trying to apply the lessons from this year and trying to make RB19 you know even stronger I'm sure the others are going to come back fighting very very hard next year but um, only time will tell.
0: You say it's hard to imagine another period of domination is that because the new regs have worked they have close the field up i mean the evidence of what we're seeing from you guys at the minute is that that's not the case
1: well it was never going to be the case when you introduce such radical regulation changes you know somebody's going to get it right somebody's going to get it wrong and uh, you know over a period of time the field will converge and the most important thing is is not to mess with those regulations to allow that convergence to, uh, to happen. Um, but I think what the, one thing that the regulations have done is that they have improved the racing, that the cars are able to follow closer. And we've seen that at so many events this year where the racing's been fantastic. You know, if you think back to those early races in Bahrain and, and uh, Saudi between Max and, uh, uh, and Charles, there's been some phenomenal racing. And for Max to have won races like he did in Budapest from 10th on the grid or Spa from 14th on the grid just demonstrates that, that, you know, these cars can overtake. They can follow closely. And I think that's been a big step in the
0: right direction. And you think that with last year's regs, given if you had the same level of domination last year that you had this year, do you think he couldn't have made the progress in those races you've just named?
1: I don't think so, because I think the cars were so hard to follow. The wake from the car was so interrupting to the car that was following that it was, it was very difficult. But the, then again, the racing we had in 2021, particularly between Max and Lewis, it was just on another dimension. I mean, that those two guys were going at it every weekend, Hammer and Tong, and it was uh, two titans at the top of their game. And it was, it was fantastic to be part of.
0: We haven't had you on the show since... The showdown last year.
2: Here comes Lewis Hamilton, though down the back straight, he's got a slipstream. He almost touches Verstappen. They almost make contact. Of all the drama, of all the controversy, of all the magic moments in Formula One in 2021, it comes down to this. Mercedes not happy. Red Bull will be delighted. They have shared a brilliant championship battle, but the championship can only be won by one. Dutch in 2021, Max Verstappen for the first time ever is champion of the world! Oh yeah! yeah! Oh my god! Yeah!
0: Yeah! Yeah! Nine months on, how do you reflect on everything that happened, particularly at the end of last year?
1: I think I've only just recovered. <laughs> uh, you're I smiling,
0: mean, actually. But how long did it take you to recover from what everything that last, went last
1: last year took every ounce of energy and commitment that this team had, and uh, you know, we came into 2021 through uh, through COVID, um, having to design the car remotely, and I think that we just did a better job as a team in that difficult period. And to so to come out of the blocks competitively as we did, to be able to give Max a car for the first time, to challenge consistently, and some of the races he drove, you know, last year were, were phenomenal. Um, he had some bad luck. He had the puncture in, in Azerbaijan um, with the incidents as well that cost a huge amount of points, whether it was at Silverstone or Hungary uh, or even Monza. You know, they were all quite expensive championship-wise, but... You know, races. When you think back to how he delivered in in Austin, uh, you know, so many phenomenal victories in Monaco, etc., cetera, et cetera, Was you know, Imola was it was a phenomenal season that he put to put together, and uh, one of total drama. There was a lot going on off track that took as much energy as the on track battle. Uh, with an awful lot of politics being played, but um, you know, it all boiled down to that last lap in in abu dhabi and um of course there'll be contrasts of opinions on that but you know we took our chances and and we got the strategy right and max still had to go and make the overtake and he got the job done and i think when you look at the season he was the deserving champion when you take into account the points that had been taken away from him so uh and of course it was so late in the year it was literally two weeks before christmas by the time we'd all gone to the FIA prize giving and everybody got COVID, um, it was uh, uh, absolute exhaustion. By the time you got to the you know to the Christmas uh, Christmas period,
0: so how long did it take you to recover? I mean, by Jan four, when everyone came back into work here, were you ready to go again, or were you still feeling a bit weary? Well, obviously,
1: once I'd recovered from COVID and was let back in the house on. On Christmas Day um, uh, to spend just spend time with your family and you know, try and forget about Formula One when it's had some some downtime over uh, over New Year. And then, you know, you start to brush yourself down and get ready to go again and um, an awful lot easier when you've got the championship trophy in your cupboard. But, uh, you know, it was massive for the whole team. And, um, you know, just a sense of pride and joy and seeing that number one applied to the car for the first time. You know, it was a very emotional moment to see, you know, we've managed what we've managed to do, what we've managed to achieve and, and, and bring it home to Milton Keynes again.
0: As you say, controversial circumstances in Abu Dhabi. Did you reach out to Michael Massey after the race? Yes, on a, on a couple of occasions, I felt
1: that it wasn't fair The way he had been treated, because I think that he'd done the best that he could following the principles that had been told. The only thing he screwed up on was not allowing the final two cars at the back of the field to unlap themselves. But everything that he'd done, you know, was was absolutely by the book and followed the principles of getting them to finish racing on track. And as we saw recently in Monza, nobody wants to see a race diluted and finished under a safety car. So he did everything to get that race going again, which would have been a horrendous finish of the season to see it just diluted and finished under, peter out under a a safety car. And then I think the reaction after the race, there was a huge amount of abuse centered at him. There was death threats to his family, no individual deserves to go through, you know, what he did.
0: What do you think of the two race directors that we have now? Is that a solution to the problem?
1: They're, they're obviously new. Um, they're obviously very competent. They've got experience, but you know, we still see issues obviously happening now and again as they're they're, they're continuing to learn and learn and evolve. But um, you know, it's a new chapter within the FIA. I think that. You know, Michael, in difficult circumstances, did the very best he could throughout the year. And we have to remember he's had very little support in that race control tower. He's left very much on his own up there. And when you follow the process of how they're looking at how cars are unlapped or not, and it's back to pens and pieces of paper, he didn't have all the backup that the teams have, for example, with our operations rooms and, and, and the software and and so on it was still a very very rudimentary process and there were things that we felt very aggrieved about you know earlier in the year or even earlier in that race where max passed lewis on the first lap and lewis wasn't instructed to give the place back And we felt that again was you know a very harsh decision that had gone gone against us we felt there were harsh decisions in qatar for example harsh decisions in saudi arabia uh, and leniency shown at different times but that's subjective to each individual where you're probably always going to feel a bit aggrieved by the referee.
0: Do you think it was right that you and Toto in particular were allowed to lobby and talk to him on the radio?
1: No, I don't in, in reality. But that was a precedent that was started. It started with Toto for the first time because the messages started to get broadcast, which I was probably guilty of because I was pushing for that within the uh, Formula One strategy meetings and commission meetings to say that, look, there's an awful lot of intercom that goes on that I think the spectators should be aware of. And that's mainly between the team managers and the, and the referee. And I, you know, the, the result of that is that hopefully you may get less of it. But I think it'll be fascinating exchange because the team manager is only going to call up the race director if they feel they've got something really strong to argue. They're not going to bitch about something that's fairly, fairly trivial. And it was in Barcelona that suddenly I hear they broadcast Toto on the phone to Mikey. I thought, that's a bit strange. Because I'd never had a one-to-one channel. It had always been centered through our team manager. And then it really permeated at Silverstone where suddenly, you know, there was an awful lot of dialogue suddenly from Toto to to Michael And then uh, he's sending him an email and then he's coming up. And I thought, right, okay, I'm not having that. I'm going up because I felt it was incredibly one sided that a team principal should not be able to lobby and influence, you know, the race director. And with hindsight, Toto and I had a fairly heated exchange, you know, in race control at that event uh, where Toto was obviously arguing his corner that his driver shouldn't be penalized. And I got a driver in hospital and a car taken out of the race and was obviously feeling pretty aggrieved by it. Um, Really after that race, I think we should have said, right, do you know what? There should only be one communication between the race director and and team managers. But of course, you know, at that point, the competitiveness becomes so driven that it's only natural you're going to do the best that you can for your team. So of course you're going to Argue as strongly for your team as you as you possibly can, and I guess that came to no greater head in uh, in Abu Dhabi, where Toto at several points during the race was trying to not get a safety car. They didn't want, uh, you know, he was trying to steer the course of the race. And I guess as soon as you hear that, because I I get that transmission, uh, my immediate reaction is defense. I want to make sure. And my best form of defense is attack to say, you know, I want to represent our position in this so that it's not one-sided because the worst thing is the last person in, in somebody's ear has the greatest influence. And so I think it's right that that has that stopped. And, Would you uh,
0: say it was a contributing factor to what ultimately happened in Abu Dhabi? I don't
1: I don't think so because I think that the key factor was Latifi crashing And there being a relatively straightforward safety car with an amount of laps left with the priority of being, let's get the race going again. And the only mistake made was not to let the two final cars, That if he had let them be unlapped, he wouldn't have made an ounce of difference. The outcome would have been identical to what happened. But
0: the fact that mistake was made, do you think it was partly driven by the fact that he had you and Toto in his ear? I don't think
1: so. I think he was... His, his pressure was he wanted to get the race going again, and that was within his power to, you know, to do so. I mean, it would have been been an absolute classic, probably the most competitive world championship we've ever had in Formula One. And it, you know, as it turned out, it was the most viewed piece of sport during the, the entire, probably in the last decade. And of course, some people are going to feel aggrieved by it. Some people are impartial to it, and some are obviously massively pro what happened but the reality is michael uh the only mistake he made was not allowing the final two cars to unlap themselves which there was plenty of time in which to enable them to do that
0: i'm fascinated by your relationship with toto was the friction between you real at times last year or was it slightly hammed up for the tv cameras
1: I think that we're in such a competitive sport, such a competitive business, and there was a huge amount going on on track, and there was a lot going off track as we were establishing Red Bull powertrains. And I think that Toto, I think, has always seen Red Bull as a as a threat because it's a team that he's not ever managed to have a, a control or an input into, and so we've always been a bit of a maverick. So it's uh, it was very intense, and because there was a lot going on off track, there was a whilst recruitment was going on of key people from within Mercedes to come across and join Red Bull powertrains. Then there was an awful lot of lobbying with the FIA on different car components and using the driver's voices to do that, whether it was, you know, rear wings, you know, on our car in Barcelona and yet front wings were allowed to flex with no, no issue. And it felt like you know, we were being played a bit and there was a bit of a media circus as well that was being utilised. And so there was a narrative being created against Red Bull that was, you know, I certainly felt was a bit unfair. or well, certainly against Max, that was very unfair.
0: Do you think the Max of 2022 with one world championship in his back pocket would have done things differently last year? Do you think, for example, he might have fought Silverstone Monza, Brazil in a different way?
1: No, I don't think so. I think that what Max we have now is is just a slightly more polished version. But you know, he's an attacking driver, and if I look at, you know, he's convinced that Silverstone he left enough enough room. I think that we put him in the situation in Monza where he had a slow pit stop. He should have never been anywhere near Lewis. But again, he felt that there was enough room in the the move that he that he made. Um, Brazil. I, I mean, when you look at the advantage that lewis had the only car he couldn't pass for 30 odd laps was max every other car it took him a lap a lap and a half to pass and for me that was a titanic drive by max and you know he's fighting for a, a world championship and he, he's the type of driver that gives it absolutely everything and it was was hard racing but it was it was fair racing
0: did we get to a point, do you think, where they'd got in each other's heads and it was always going to end in the old collision and because neither was prepared to give anything?
1: Well, I think arguably maybe more so in Lewis's head because certainly you know, he's the seven time world champion that has everything to lose. Max is the young kid that's taking the risks, that's, that's throwing everything at it and got nothing to lose. Some of his overtaking last year was, was stunning. And you felt that that started to rattle Lewis. I think you know we definitely saw after Lewis qualified on pole at Silverstone and Max won the sprint race. You saw Lewis was you know he was a bit broken after the sprint race. And you know had Max made it through Cops, I don't think you know they'd have seen him again that after that afternoon. So there's an air of desperation building in as you know as well and. uh yeah, you know, it was high-stakes stuff and, uh, you know, emotions, you know, run high. But uh, it probably affected Lewis arguably more than the Max because, as I say, he, he'd got more to lose than, than Max. Max had everything to everything to gain.
0: High stakes, as you say, but behind closed doors, was the respect from Max to Lewis real? Did you hear Max talk about Lewis as a driver and the respect that he had for him? I think
1: th- th- there's always been a, a respect there. I mean, you can't not respect everything that Lewis has done and achieved in the sport. is remarkable. I mean, probably never to be bettered. But when you you know, everybody is beatable at, at some point in time. And I think, you know, Max had a respect for Lewis, but he wasn't in awe of him or he wasn't afraid of him or wasn't afraid. And he relished going up against him. He relished the opportunity to go wheel-to-wheel racing with him. And I think ultimately he, he believed that he could beat him. And it was that inner belief and self-confidence that on so many occasions you saw, you know, come through.
0: You say we have a more polished version of Max this year, but the domination of your car has allowed him to be a little bit more polished hasn't it it would be really interesting to see how he would race wheel to wheel in a similar situation to last year i think
1: the the racing between him and charles i mean think back to bahrain or saudi or you know some of those early ra- races like miami i mean there was phenomenal racing between the two of them but not not once did they ever touch each other
0: do you think max races charles in a different way to lewis I, you know there's a difference
1: there's a perhaps a different respect uh, with Charles they'd race each other since kids and there was a mutual respect I've never once ever heard Lewis recognize Max's ability and so of course there was just a bit more needle to it and you could feel that and you could sense that between those two drivers
0: now Max can win the world title as early as Singapore next week do you think he'll approach that race similar to the 16 that have gone before? Do you think we might see any tightening up, doing anything different? I doubt it very much. I mean, Max's best form of defense is attack. And <laughs> you, I think you and Max are quite similar in that way.
1: Well, that's the, the DNA of this team that you've got to go for it. And, you know, we're an attacking team. We, we, we take on challenges, um, you know, wholeheartedly. And, and that's part of the culture of, you know, if you go defensive, you, you know, you're conceding something best form of defense is attack and i think that you know that's the same for every single race you know that we'll compete in for the rest of this year and then the championship tables take care of them themselves but i mean max has had some amazing races this year you know as a checo and uh you know it's not by accident he's got himself into this position
0: how different will these world titles feel compared to last year and indeed compared to the the four in the early well, if we're lucky enough to convert
1: them, they'll feel a lot less stressful. Do, do you mean ah. that?
0: If, if you're lucky enough to convert them when you are light years ahead in, in both championships, is it your mentality that you cannot accept that you can win these until they're actually in the bag?
1: No, look, you, nothing's done until it's done. We're in a wonderful position in, in the drivers and in the constructors, but you never allow yourself to get carried away. Uh, maybe it's a British thing or whatever. I don't, I don't know or But uh, the focus is on, right, let's do the best we can in every single race. And then the tables will take care of themselves and and don't take anything for granted. I mean, we were, what, 46 points behind when we lost Australia. And within two races, we turned that round. So, you know, there's big swings that are achievable and, and, you know, sprint races and and so on still to go. But uh, we're in a healthy position, but it's never done until it's done.
0: What motivates you? the lure of success or the fear of failure? I think it's both. I think
1: what drives you on is to experience that feeling of seeing your cars cross the line first to see your driver lift the winner's trophy, to see him become world champion, to see your team achieve the ultimate of becoming constructors world champion. And, and it's that fear of failure that, again, is a massive motivating factor. And it all depends on the type of person and type of character
0: that you are. Now, fear of failure segues nicely onto our next topic, which is Red Bull powertrains. And what I mean by fear of failure is I'm always reminded when I think of you and power units, I just think of your relationship with Renault Mm -hmm. in the early era of of the, the hybrid era. Was that the motivation to start your own powertrains business is to never be left in that kind of situation again? Take care of your own destiny. It was one of
1: the I mean, we're a demanding customer We we set high standards and we demand high standards. And in Honda, we've experienced for the first time a, a like minded partner and have had a wonderful partnership with Honda. But of course, when they elected to withdraw from the sports, we were faced with choices. Do we go back to being a customer where? everything would be a compromise. Or do we take control of our own destiny? One might say it's foolhardy and a a huge risk for a subsidiary of an energy drinks manufacturer to go and try and produce its own engine and take on the likes of Mercedes-Benz and Ferrari and, and Renault and other manufacturers. So in typical Red Bull fashion, we embraced what would seem to be the impossible and took control of our own destiny. That puts us in a situation where we have everything under one roof. We, have, other than Ferrari, we have engine engineers and designers sitting next to chassis engineers and designers, all on one campus here in Milton Keynes. And we believe that strategically offers a benefit for the long term. And again, you just take control of your own of your own destiny. And and like with the chassis, applying the same methodology of getting the right people, empowering them, having a a can-do culture, and providing with the right tools and equipment, why can't we produce a competitive power unit?
0: Indeed, but equally, why is being a customer a compromise these days, given that they're all meant to be the same?
1: Because there will always be compromises, whether it's on the installation or the cooling or that intimate relationship that the engine forms with the chassis and the transmission, you know, of the car that suddenly you would have to, because we wouldn't, you know, if you had a Ferrari engine, they're not going to make their cooling requirements based on a customer team or, you know, Mercedes certainly wouldn't have supplied or, or Renault um, with their own works team. There would have always been compromises, whereas with Honda, we had no compromise, because they were only focused on us. And that was such a different relationship to what we'd previously experienced. It was like, well, we don't want to give that up from a quite a selfish perspective, that that is an advantage to how we package and integrate within the, within the chassis. So therefore taking control and having that all under one roof and ownership makes a whole load of sense.
0: Why didn't you do this earlier when you were getting very frustrated with Renault That's that infamous quote from you we're paying for first class but we're getting an economy class seat from Renault why didn't you do it then
1: I think because the investment at that time and the technology was so advanced it would have been unimaginable and we probably weren't mature enough as an organization to take that on whereas now you know we're at a stage that we are that mature that the regulations that have come in have allowed with the homologated engines until the end of 25 it's allowed us that period of time to build up rebel powertrains for entry in 2026 and with regulations that are reasonably known it enables us to take that plunge and of course with the budget cap as well which was absolutely crucial element to becoming a, a power unit manufacturer because otherwise we would never be able to compete with the likes of the the manufacturer teams or oems that would have unlimited r&d budgets at their
0: disposal right so the budget cap has allowed you to come in as red bull powertrains but i did want to ask you has the budget cap taken something away from the dna of formula one
1: in some respects i mean we've got as many people in finance now as we do in the drawing office and it's become an accounting world championship as much as a uh um, as a, much as a technical or a sporting one, but that's part of the challenge. And of course, compromises have had to be made and um, you know, we've had to reshape our organization. Thankfully, we've managed to reallocate you know, people into other areas of the organization, whether it be powertrains or into uh, Red Bull Advanced Technology, which of course is producing you know, our own hypercar. It's driven efficiency in the business, which is a, a positive thing. But I think the problem that we have is we're too reliant on the cap And the the cost drivers are the technical regs and these cars are still incredibly expensive to design and manufacture and I think less emphasis should be played on the financial regs and more further upstream on the technical regs to be designing and producing simpler, more economic cars.
0: What, more standard
1: parts? Either more standard parts or more standard design or simpler design or restrictions in materials or updates or you know there's, there's many ways in which you could reduce the cost of these of these cars
0: well christian back to powertrains will any future partnership with you guys will it have to include red bull powertrains so could a manufacturer come to you and say we want to get into bed with you guys we're going to focus on you but we're doing it all ourselves would that work for you
1: Well, not really, because the sort of trains left the station now. Where we're, you know, we've produced our own um, prototype engine, a full V six. We have a team of some of the best engineers in Formula One here. We've invested heavily in facilities and dynos and equipment and uh, and manufacturing capability. So we have all that ability under under one roof now. We don't need a partner. However, you can never say never if, if there's somebody strategically that, that was ripe for the long term or offered some form of advantage that we wouldn't previously have access to.
0: Has Dietrich Mateschitz said to you, I want to win with my own power unit? I think the pride that he had when he heard the first Red Bull engine
1: far into life um, was huge. It was huge for him and for the whole business. There you know, people are actually in tears in the dyno room because the amount of effort that had gone in, it was a historic moment for the company that suddenly, you know, Red Bull are not just a chassis manufacturer, they're a power unit manufacturer. And, you know, where that leads us to with, you know, the RB17 project. Um, of course, the, the natural extension of that is that we produce an engine to go in our own car, track car. So that's tremendously, tremendously exciting.
0: Is there any truth? That Honda would like to come back in as a works partner with you guys.
1: There's plenty of speculation. I think you know Honda with, uh, announced their withdrawal for uh, because their their range of vehicles were heading the electrical route, and obviously combustion engines didn't form part of their future. So it's difficult to imagine them doing a complete U-turn on that. But maybe there are elements that might want to come in, back in, or the the you know with the fifty-fifty split between combustion and and electrical power with the future power unit, maybe that is a, a route for them to retain an involvement in Formula One, but nothing that we're doing is, is in any way dependent or contingent upon that. We're very much uh, on our own track.
0: In your experience of dealing with the manufacturers, is there a herd mentality in that you get, well, if they're doing it, I need to do it. So with Audi coming in, does suddenly is there more pressure on other manufacturers to come in?
1: Well, it's great that the manufacturers are coming in. It just demonstrates how... How relevant Formula One is, and how how strong uh, its marketing presence is, because we're seeing figures, I'm viewing figures that we've never seen before. So it's a case of you know the manufacturers sort of can't afford not to be, and many of them have announced that they've made their last ever combustion engine. Yet here we are in Formula One committing to a V6 with sustainable fuels for the for the future, and I think that it just demonstrates the strength of Formula One because logically these guys would be going the Formula E route, but you know, the emotion and the passion just isn't there from what I see in that in that form of racing, whereas Formula One it draws that raw emotion and and uh, and technical excellence. So it's great to see a manufacturer like Audi and and you know hopefully Porsche coming into Formula One and a host of interest from many others.
0: What happened with you guys in Porsche?
1: We had some exploratory discussions with Porsche and um, they're a great brand a great company to see you know what a potential collaboration could look like but those talks reached a conclusion that it was felt best that you know we were better going it on our on our own and sticking to the original plan so hopefully that doesn't rule out Porsche coming into the into the sport because as I say they're a, a great brand but it was impossible to see you know how the two companies could work effectively and, and what complementary support there would be
0: now clearly there is an interest within red bull to do things outside of formula one the supercar project the rb17 you've mentioned you've got your own power unit division now will we see you guys getting involved in other championships whether it's formula e or Would IndyCar ever interest you guys in the way that McLaren are over there now? Well, we've done
1: bits and pieces. We did the aero screen in in the IndyCar Championship. We're heavily involved in the uh, America's Cup, in uh, the America's Cup. Um, we are designing a submarine, oh. uh, a three-man submarine. <laughs> we are, stop there.
0: Why are you doing that? Uh, um, they're
1: projects that advanced technology have, have, have taken on. And, you know, we're working with KTM in MotoGP with aerodynamic studies and... And um, Chris Hoy, we've got a great project, you know, going with him on the bicycle components and BMC we're working with. So, so we've got a, a a great list of customers that Advanced Technology is working with. And of course, the biggest single project within that is the RB17, the ultimate track car, taking everything that Adrian has done in his career and throwing it into the ultimate track car, which has got just insane levels of... Of performance, and that's tremendously exciting for the whole company.
0: Does he think he can make a better track car than the Valkyrie?
1: Yeah, because he's totally unrestrained by the regulations, because as a track car, obviously there are safety regulations it has to pass, but there are not the stringent road car regulations that it has to comply with. So that, that makes it a far simpler project in many, in many respects.
0: I touched on America IndyCar a moment ago. Would you consider... An IndyCar team.
1: IndyCar teams are pretty specialist. And they run effectively like Formula 2 teams where they run a customer car and so on. So it wouldn't really make a great deal of sense for us to get involved in.
0: Even if you're trying to get an American driver into Formula 1, because of course there's a lot of talk about Colton Hertig joining yeah. Alpha AlphaTauri. I mean, on the subject of Colton, why are you guys so interested in him? Because he finished 10th in the championship this year. Do you still believe he's the best offering from that side of the pond
1: yes but if you look a year ago I mean it's quite stunning what he was achieving and I think that uh, you know America's a huge market and I think we're seeing that growth in the sport and it would be great to give arguably the best current driver in a in America or American driver an opportunity in Formula One unfortunately the the licensing restrictions will probably prevent that from from happening, but... Uh,
0: Is there a case for force measure here or, or do you respect the FIA I think stance? we'll have
1: to respect the FIA stance at the end of the day. That's down to the FIA to look at. And I know that they're doing, you know, they're doing that, but we'll accept obviously whichever decision they, they come up with. But it's something that needs looking at because it shouldn't be so hard for drivers to transition from America's Premier Series into Formula
0: One. What about the Red Bull Junior programme? Is that in good shape? Yeah, it is. I think,
1: you know, we're continuing to invest in youth. We've got some great youngsters in the programme, all the way from karting or stepping into Formula 4 now, you know, upwards. And I think it's something that Red Bull have done so well, is giving, giving these kids a chance, investing in young talent and, and giving opportunities that otherwise they wouldn't have had.
0: Who do we need to look out for?
1: There's a few guys. I mean, Isaac Hadjah, I think in Formula 3 this year, has a, a, had a great debut Season, I think Iwaza in in Formula Two has been a standout driver for me. So they're just two of the guys, you know, on the on the program. Liam Lawson's had a had a tough year, but you know, he's again had another another talent. Dennis Hauger has been a bit underwhelming in Formula Two after such a dominant year in Formula Three. But again, how much of that is him? How much of it is is equipment?
0: You're still so clued up with all the young drivers, and you know, for a man who's been in the, involved in the sport for 30 years, first as a driver, I did want to ask you one final thing on drivers. And that is that if you were managing Oscar Piastri, where would he be racing in 2023? What was your take on that whole scenario? It's a different one because I'm not privy to all the
1: discussions and conversations. I, you know, Oscar, he drove for the Arden team in Formula 4 and Formula Renault and was obviously a, a significant, talent and um, there was an opportunity for Red Bull to look at him at the time and we you know we didn't take up that option which is something that I regret but uh, you know what he went on to achieve is phenomenal in Formula 3 and, and Formula 2 now if he'd have been a driver here there is no way that he wouldn't have been under lock and key for a period in time so you know as i say I, I wasn't party or it's difficult to judge what was promised and or reneged on or or, or so on but it certainly uh, was unexpected and uh probably from several areas and um you know fernando obviously dropped the stone in the pond and created the ripple that <laughs> that, that rolled out over uh numerous seats but um you know, he's he's a a great driver. I mean, the only thing that problem that he now has to deal with is the expectation on him will be immense.
0: And do you rate Lando Norris?
1: Ah, uh, very much so, very yeah. much so. so. He's got and, a problem. Serious, serious teammate. So, all, so yeah, know, he's going to have to get in and deliver against Lando, which is no mean feat. But you know, you you either sink or swim in this business, and uh, uh, he's a very very capable driver. I'm sure he's going to do very well.
0: Christian, I feel we're up to date. Thank you very much for your time it's been great to have you back on the show six to go two world championships almost in the bag best of luck with it all thank you very much good to see you again you either sink or swim in this business very true words and it's not a surprise to hear christian saying them because he's so competitive He's a fighter and he has a stellar track record in Formula One. Christian, many thanks for your time and for your insights. What you said about the team, about Abu Dhabi last year and about the future of Red Bull powertrains was fascinating. And I really want to know more about the three man submarine that you're building. That sounds like a fun test drive. As ever, please send in your thoughts and stories about Christian and I'll read out a few of them at the end of next week's show. Send them to me at Tom Clarkson F1 or use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Timo Glock after last week. Reliving Brazil 2008 brought back a lot of memories for many of us, didn't it? Let's start with this from David Cundall. It was great to hear from Timo. I always felt that he was very harshly maligned after Brazil 2008. And it was even worse to hear of the various threats that he and his family received in the aftermath. Well, thanks for the message, David. And you're right. The after effects of what happened at Interlagos that year were horrendous for Timo. And it seems ridiculous that a driver of his ability should be so harshly maligned by a situation that he could do nothing about. Let's go next to Gabriel Sturmer. As a Brazilian F1 fan, he says, I held a grudge against Timo for a lot longer than I'm proud to admit. He comes across as such a nice character and he was a great F1 racer at the time. Well, thanks for the note, Gabriel. And I'm sure you're not the only Brazilian F1 fan to have held a grudge against Timo after Interlagos 2008. But I'm glad we've been able to tell his side of the story. Finally, let's hear from Polish Eddie. I'm sure this podcast is definitely going to help change a lot of people's minds about Timo, and rightfully so. He's a great guy and obviously innocent of any wrongdoing in Brazil 2008. Well, let's hope so, because Timo is a great guy and he's a great driver. We'll leave it there for this week for your messages, but thank you to everyone who wrote in. I read them all. You're very opinionated. (laughs) That's my conclusion after this week. That's almost the end of the show. If you're hungry for more on Red Bull's journey in Formula One, then you can listen to our previous conversations with Christian Horner and Sergio Perez in the Beyond the Grid back catalogue. You'll find links in the episode description. And while you're there, make sure you follow F1 Beyond the Grid so you don't miss an upcoming episode. And maybe leave us a rating or a review as well. And why not share this episode with a friend or your fellow F1 fans on social. Thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.